Welcome to McQuaid Arcade, the podcast for all things 80s. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. That was my Batman voice. <laughs> that was awesome. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to do it too, but I can't do it quite as well as you. No, nobody can, except Michael Keaton. <laughs> uh, we're talking about Batman, 1989 Batman, starring Michael Keaton by Tim Burton. I feel like before we talk about this movie, we need to really set the stage more than kind of anything else that we've talked about before. This needs some historical context, right? Definitely. I feel like there are two big pieces of pop culture that, unless you were around for and old enough to remember, Star Wars was a huge deal. We were super little when it came out. So don't, you know, that wasn't really part of our, our memory. But the two things that I think are really, really difficult to truly convey the impact they had at the time are Pac-Man and this movie, Batman in 1989. I mean, yeah, you can look at the numbers. You can look back and see how successful both these things were in terms of money made and arcade cabinets sold and box office sales. But in 1980, everyone you knew, young, old, whatever, was playing Pac-Man, right? It was the most accessible video game ever created at that point. No buttons, just a joystick, a fun, bright, colorful character that resonated with everybody. There was a song on the radio. We all had Pac-Man fever. Yeah, it broke the Billboard Top 10. That's how popular the song was. Every business that legally could have a Pac-Man machine had one. There was just this buzz about it that you can't really quantify by looking at the numbers. Yes. In 89, before this movie even came out, Batman was everywhere. Right? There was the iconic movie poster with the big gold bat symbol on it. Uh, not the one they used in the movie anywhere, which was a little weird considering how iconic this poster was. Mm. Uh, kids had posters of this crazy, weird, amazing new Batmobile in their room. Bat- everybody had a Batman t-shirt on. The Bat Dance played nonstop. I think it came out uh, June of that year. June 1st, I want to say. It first played on the radio. It was kind of the that song was all that defined that summer. Yeah, for sure. Kids had the Bat Symbol, bat symbol shaved into their hair. And again, this was before anybody had even seen this movie. And I think it's important to talk about, too, the state of superhero and and comic book movies in 1989. Today, that's kind of all that's at the movies, right? I feel like 90% of what we see at the movies now is is a superhero movie. I mean, well, maybe not now because movies aren't really a thing anymore here in 2020. But, um, you know, in 1989, we had, when it came to comic book movies, we had Christopher Reeves as Superman and Howard the Duck. <laughs> Which was unspeakably bad. And as a kid, I have to confess, when I saw Howard the Duck, I just didn't get it. I didn't understand why people were excited about it. I thought it was a terrible, terrible movie. Fun fact, it's my wife's favorite movie of all time. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Um, so for two kids who love superheroes and comic books and stuff, this was a big deal. It's a huge deal. In fact, Batman to this day holds my personal record for the most times seeing a movie in the theater at five times. I know you and I saw it at least twice together. Mm-hmm. And then three more times I dragged anybody else who would go see it with me to the movies. Yes, Batman was our movie. We felt the need to take people to it, to evangelize, to shepherd them through the experience, even before we really knew what it was going to be like. It was some combination, I think, of our age, the novelty of a comic book coom live action film, and the overall presentation and hype that made it seem like it was a love letter written for us. I also think we need to talk about the casting 
of this movie because the casting was such a huge part of the buzz leading up to it. The two main characters in this movie caused such a stir, both for really different reasons, right? I remember very clearly hearing that Mr. Mom, Michael Keaton, was going to be cast as Batman. It just seemed completely ridiculous. Yes, for sure. I mean, we loved Michael Keaton. Mr. Mom was hilarious. Beetlejuice. We knew him as Beetlejuice. Uh, he was awesome. But as as Batman, this was such a crazy casting choice. So much so that, you know, it's funny. We talk about the internet now, how people complain about movies constantly and all these petitions to have movies remade uh, in the way that fans, spoiled fans, want them made. We've seen it with Star Wars. We've seen it with Captain Marvel. Game um, of Thrones all sorts apparently of had a whole, a yeah, whole protest yeah. set up. Yeah. Um, back when people heard Michael Keaton was going to be Bruce Wayne, 50,000 letters of protest were sent to the Warner Brothers office. Oh, my gosh. So this is not a new uh, phenomenon. The other big casting announcement was met with really very much the opposite reaction, and that's Jack Nicholson as the Joker, which seemed like the most perfect, brilliantly perfect casting choice ever. And he pulled it off. He really did. All right, let's talk about the movie itself. Let's break it down. So it opens up with this amazing credit sequence. Uh, from the get-go, this movie is is unique and it grabs you. We have Danny Elfman's iconic Batman theme as the camera sort of flies in. And you don't realize it until everything kind of zooms out, kind of pans back. But it zoom, the camera flies in and around the bat symbol. And then we cut to Gotham City. And can I say and, about that? Yeah. While that is now commonplace, we see a lot of movies do something like that for its time. That kind of blew us away. That was an exciting and really visually innovative opening. Oh, for sure. For sure. It absolutely blew us away. Story starts up. We're in Gotham City. We see a, a family try to unsuccessfully try to catch a cab outside of the Monarch Theater in Gotham. And right away, Gotham is establishes this this dark, grimy, really unfriendly sort of place. And what I like about this movie is that they don't make it like a comic book set. It feels like a real grounded living city. It doesn't feel goofy or over the top. There's a real authenticity to everything happening, including, yeah, this grimy dark feel where these people are rummaging through the garbage. And it's kind of neat because we hear just a tiny snippet. I had to play it over and over to make sure that's what it was of the Prince song, The Future, in this diegetic manner, it really seems to be part of the environment as we pass over these people. And it's kind of a grim, bleak picture of Gotham. Yes. Uh, there's so much of that with the soundtrack in this movie. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But they do a good job of establishing Gotham. First of all, it looks amazing. It looks like a real place. We're going to talk a little bit about the sequel to this movie, Batman Returns, which I love. And I think it actually improves on this movie a lot of ways. This was not one of them. Uh, the Gotham City we get in Batman Returns, it it feels like a set. It looks kind of like a set. This was amazing how real this city looked. Gotham City is such a big part of Batman and the story that it almost needs to be a character in itself, right? And they do this great job of establishing it in this movie. It's this, it's this really hopeless place. Um, yes, I really like that. Gotham is a character unto itself and it has its own lifeblood and pulse. And I think it's so neat to see Batman 
inextricably linked with Gotham. And these two kind of form this, this connection. And that really takes us through the story. And I was interested in what the architecture and the city itself kind of felt like, because it is striking. I mean, especially for 1989, but even today, it's a beautiful set piece. And again, as you say, it doesn't feel like a set piece. It feels like a real city. And I was nerding out a little bit reading Arc Daily which is the world's most visited architecture website, according to their own byline. So I'm not sure how much stock we can place in that. But they note, quote, in the 1989 film, Burton generates a whole Gothic environment full of Art Deco and Art Nouveau buildings within Gotham City. Locations were inspired by urban spaces from New York City, Los Angeles, West London, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Tokyo, to Hong Kong. Even though, they point out, Gotham City was a well-known nickname for New York City before Batman was ever written. Unquote. And so then I had to look that up. I thought, wait a minute. I thought Gotham was sort of a Batman invention, but it turns out it's been a nickname since uh, the 19th century. And apparently it was first written in 1807 in a magazine called Salmagundi, which was a lampoon type periodical that made fun of New York culture and politics. And they took the name from the village of Gotham, Nottinghamshire, England, a place inhabited, according to folklore by fools speaking of fools the uh the dad in the family decides to uh you know he's got his map out he's trying to figure out where to go he leads them down an alley now as you're watching this if you're at all familiar with batman's origin story and i'm sure this was intentional you kind of think that maybe this is uh old bruce wayne and his mom and dad they're outside the monarch theater and now they're cutting through this scary alley, uh, but they're clearly tourists and find themselves down this alley getting mugged. So it's not the Wayne family. It's not little Bruce, but he's there. Bruce is there uh, watching the whole thing unfold from a balcony above. And we see this. It's this really cool shot of Batman sort of silhouette from above on this balcony. And he turns around and there's his cape kind of flows out behind him. And you can tell it's animated. It looks hand drawn. It's a really beautiful, neat little moment. It really is. And I feel like clearly in a modern film, this would have been CGI to the point where you couldn't tell, but it actually makes it stand out. And later in the movie, they do spotlights on the side of the building that are also clearly animated. So it kind of gives it this otherworldly effect, but I actually think it works for the film and is very Burton-esque. Now, this scene establishes this as kind of a weird Batman movie. I love this movie, but this is clearly a take, speaking of Burton, on Batman by somebody who is never read uh, Batman. He actually has gone on record as saying, at back at the time, I think he has since, uh, he said that he'd, quote, never read a comic book. So we have Batman, the savior of Gotham City, protector of the weak and innocent, watch as his family, uh, who's in the same exact situation in which his parents were murdered in front of him. He watches the dad just get pistol whipped in the back of the skull. The mom's getting a giant gun shoved in her face. Uh, and he just sort of stands there and watches it happen. He's like, this is good. This is perfect. I'm going to wait till these guys are done, uh, maybe murdering this family. And then I'm going to find them. And boy, am I going to scare them. And that's what he does. Uh, that's what happens next. The muggers are up on a rooftop, splitting their, their take. And they're very uneasy talking about the bat, this terrifying creature that is apparently stalking the rooftops of Gotham City that threw their friend off a roof, like to his death. Um, once again, not really the Batman, uh, who has been log established in the comics at this point uh, as not 
killing people. Like he stopped killing people around 1940, I think, in the comic book. Mm. This sets the tone for the super murdery Batman we're going to get over the course of these couple movies. Uh, fun fact, between Batman and Batman Returns, Batman racks up approximately 20 kills, which, as it turns out, is three more than uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. I have to just say one comment about being a superhero and fighting really bad guys who are often ganging up on you and still being able to not kill people. Like, it's sort of the next level skill, right? To, to be able to actually fight and, and sort of knock people out, incapacitate people without killing them, you have to be several orders of magnitude better than them. So it's kind of a testament to how good he can be. And in here, maybe in a way, it just sort of grounds him in sort of his earlier phase. I mean, he's still called the bat. And this is sort of maybe his beginning in some ways. Uh, and and he just hasn't gotten the skill level to be that, to have that kind of finesse. Yes, uh, it turns out this is actually early in his career. Uh, he is just sort of a, a rumor, an urban legend at this point. We're going to find out later that he's that this has only been going on for a few weeks. So you would think maybe a, a more seasoned Batman would realize I can do this without killing people. Um, but in the next movie, he's still, uh, if anything, more murdery in the next movie. <laughs> Literally stuffs dynamite down a guy's pants in the next one. But we'll talk about that. Never mind. Um, okay. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good theory, though. So next in the story, we meet uh, some more key players. District Attorney Harvey Dent, played by the great Billy D. Williams, who, sadly, we never get to see as Two-Face. Mm. Harvey Dent, of course, goes on to become uh, the, the villain Two-Face. He got to play Two-Face in the amazing Lego Batman movie from a few years ago, which I would argue is an absolutely quintessential Batman movie experience. It's so good. A total gem. We brought our we brought our kids to see it, and you and I were just cracking up through the whole thing. We enjoyed it more um, than they did. Yeah. Oh, by far. It was so good. We meet Commissioner Gordon, played by Pat Hingle, who, along with Michael Goh as Alfred, uh, are the only two actors to be in all four of these old uh, Burton Schumacher Batman movies. Oh, wow. Uh, and most importantly, we meet Jack Napier, Jack Nicholson's character, the gangster who goes on to become the Joker. I was reading about the Joker's name because it does change from comic book to movie and in various stories. He doesn't seem to have one cohesive or consistent story and napier actually comes from the word jackanapes which one of the definitions is an impertinent or conceited fellow in one of the main writers sam ham said that that's partially why he picked that next we meet vicky vale a photojournalist in gotham to catch the infamous bat on film she shows up at a big benefit at uh, wayne manor hoping to pump commissioner gordon who will be in attendance for information now, this is where we see Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne for the first time. And we meet Alfred. Alfred Pennyworth, his faithful butler, for the first time. And this amazing, wordless interaction they have, uh, which is basically just Alfred running around cleaning up after Bruce, sort of in the background, sets up their relationship so beautifully and in such a fun way. I want to mention Alexander Knox, the reporter character, played by Robert Wool as well at this point, because I think he is one of the only missteps in this film, in my opinion. Maybe it was the way he was being directed. Maybe it's him as an actor. Or maybe it was just his interpretation of the character. But I really feel like it seems he's in a different movie, especially early on. The film is 
kind of grounded. It's realistic. I feel like if you walked in on somebody watching it, you wouldn't necessarily know it's a superhero movie at all or a quote unquote comic book movie. But then he walks in and he's so goofy and overacting. I found it actually even more off-putting now. I think I, I giggled more when I was a kid and thought it was a little bit more charming, but now it just felt almost hammy. And then between him and the guy playing the crooked cop, Eckhart, who's played by William Hootkins, who incidentally played Porkins, also known as Red Six in the original Star Wars movie, I think the tone's a little uneven. And no doubt you would say that it's at least an idiosyncratic production, but I guess that's Burton for you. Those characters almost would have felt more at home to me in Dick Tracy. Remember the Dick Tracy movie they did? A hundred percent. That's exactly what they felt like, where it was intentionally overplayed, intentionally hyped up in that in that dimension. But this was more realistic, so it fell out of place. So Commissioner Gordon leaves the party unexpectedly after the Gotham PD gets a tip that Jack Napier is destroying incriminating evidence at Axis Chemical Company at the order of his, his boss, Carl Grissom, played hilariously by Jack Palance, kind of the only guy you could picture as being uh, Jack Nicholson's boss in anything, right? Um, and, and he was fantastic, right? I mean, he he does hype it up a little bit. He's kind of melodramatic, but it's believable. And he's such a forceful actor that you buy it. There's not one second you don't, you you don't buy, buy it. You buy the fact that he's like the biggest crime lord in Gotham. Yes. And it turns out the whole thing's a setup. He sends Jack uh, on this wild goose chase for evidence that isn't there and sends in his battalion of crooked Gotham cops who are on his payroll in after him uh, with an order to shoot to kill as payback for Jack having an affair with his, we don't know, wife, mistress, girlfriend, whatever. It's not really clear. Yes. The one who he, right, right. Who later becomes the the Joker's mistress. Uh, And yeah. Right. The best line was when Eckhart says, shoot to kill. Know what I mean? It's such a strange moment. Again, in this, like, he almost felt like he was dubbed, right? Yes. It was his voice that was so, so out of place. Really weird. He he stands, if anything, he stands out even more than, than Knox does to me in this movie. So Bruce, at the party, uh, with all of his surveillance equipment, overhears the commissioner, and he suits up, heads over to Axis, where he confronts the fleeing uh, Jack, who shoots him and is horribly injured as the bullet is deflected by Batman's armored gauntlet and smashes a a, a gauge, right? A glass yes. gauge cover. His face full of broken glass. Jack tumbles over a guardrail and into a big vat of chemicals below. Next, we have a, a really great scene. Vicky joins Bruce for dinner at Wayne Manor. And they start off in this gigantic dining room with this comically <laughs> long dining room table. One of the scenes in which Michael Keaton's sort of comedic roots really sort of shine through. Yes. They're sitting at this table trying to, (laughs) they can barely hear each other. It's so, they're so far apart. And uh, in the classic line when he says, how's the zoop? (laughs) She says, what? Zoop. How is it? (laughs) I love that line. And it stuck with us for all these years. What I also love is that there is sort of a story within the story, right? This is representative of the whole, that they're in this big, totally isolated room where they're feeling very far apart. And then he says, you want to get out of here? And they go to the nice, cozy corner and together they sit. And you really feel that it, it sort of uh, it sort of represents the relationship as a whole. They were far apart and now they're close together and it's warm. And it's really a beautiful way to do that. It, uh, my wife and I, whenever we're having soup, one of us will inevitably look at the other and go, <laughs> How's the zoop? Um, and there's this hilarious moment 
where Vicky is like, uh, so you, you eat dinner in here a lot? And he's like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And he looks around and he's like, no, I don't think I've ever been in this room before. <laughs> you want to get out of here? And they had, you know, it's some like back kitchen or something. This little, we don't know if it's maybe like uh, where Alfred lives. That's what it feels like too, right? It feels like his quarters. It feels like his little uh, apartment in this in this huge place. And it's this beautiful warm scene. We need to talk about Alfred for sure. Uh, this beautiful little scene. They're just sitting around this cozy little table having dinner. Alfred included. He's eating with them. Uh, sharing stories about old Bruce when he was a kid. And it's this really beautiful scene. Uh, the actor who plays Alfred is is so warm and so just, you know, Vicky even points out, he's like, man, he loves you so much. And it's just, this movie sets up this beautiful relationship between um, Alfred and Bruce that is so essential, I feel like, for a good Batman story. They really did. And what I love is that they were so efficient about it, right? There weren't a ton of words. There weren't a ton of backflashes with Vaseline smeared lenses and nope. showing the story of Alfred changing his diaper. But just the body language and the way they interact with each other and the few words they share is enough that you buy it. And that's that's good acting. You can't fake that. You have to have gravitas. Vicky at one point asked about Bruce's family and he said, Alfred is my family. And you see it. They show it. They do an amazing job. So Vicky ends up spending the night and is woken up by a weird creaking noise. <laughs> this is one of those moments where this movie gets a little weird. She wakes up and there's Bruce hanging from some very, I feel like, very 80s exercise <laughs> apparatus. He's hanging upside down. His the arms gravity folded. Boot yeah, gravity boots. Thing. His arms are folded like a bat. <laughs> and that would be one thing. But this thing is so loud. He's slowly swaying back and forth like... <laughs> when this per other person is sleeping feet mere feet from him seems pretty inconsiderate uh when you have a guest but uh you know in a house big enough that there are rooms you've never been in you think you could just take it to one of the other rooms just maybe next door or something just nope. drag Sorry. it drag this thing to literally any other giant room in this house nope he is right next to the bed hanging upside down in his weird bat machine so <laughs> So it turns out Jack survived the old acid bath, and um, we we find this out in a weird scene, right? The, there's sort of this, you see the pipes going out to the river, and this clearly, like, mannequin hand, do you remember this? Like, the hand... It's white. White yeah. hand comes out of the water, but you could tell it's not like a person's hand. It doesn't move at all. It was very strange. So he's we see that he's alive, and after getting patched up at a not exactly sanitary back alley surgeon a great scene the doctor's like you see what i have to work with and he's these <laughs> awful tools fun fact the same tools that steve martin uses as the dentist in little shop of horrors same props oh my gosh you know it's funny they looked familiar to me because they are really horrifying yeah so he shows up uh at grissom's place and kills him for betraying him and then very quickly establishes himself as the new head of Gotham's underworld. There's this great scene where he sort of meets with all the other bosses, you know, who worked under Grissom. And uh, he has had time to invent a, a joy buzzer that sets people on fire when, when they shake his hand and gotten all of his goons <laughs> matching Joker jackets and stuff. And there's this really cool moment where when he meets with uh, all these other mobsters, he has put makeup on to cover up his white face. And he takes uh, this handkerchief and wipes his forehead. And you could see, you know, he's he's the character is wiping away the 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 flesh colored 
makeup on his forehead. I always assumed they did this cool little effect by just putting some white makeup on this handkerchief. That's some white stuff that he just smears on his forehead, right? Obviously. Right. Far more complicated than that. I read about this actually last night before we recorded the show. He was wearing white makeup, this white grease paint, with uh, a layer of much less sturdy flesh-colored makeup on top of that. And the handkerchief has some kind of alcohol on it that is strong enough to rub away the top layer of flesh-colored makeup, but not the white grease paint underneath it. Oh my gosh, that's so convoluted, but Seems awesome. So much more complex than it needed to be, but yeah, crazy, right? A cool, very cool little practical special effect. The, the makeup is really spectacular, and, and his his makeup in particular looks wonderful, and I love that little detail. Later, he actually says when he's baiting Batman on the television, when he takes over the airwaves, he says, I've removed my makeup. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's lying. Right. Because, in fact, he's actually put makeup on. It's this funny little twist. I thought that was really kind of cerebral. I forget how many hours uh, Jack Nicholson had to spend in the makeup chair, but he would basically like walk in and say hi to everybody and then just go to sleep in the chair for hours while they did all the the crazy stuff to him. (laughs) So the Joker then begins using Axis Chemical to manufacture a toxin, Smilex, that he starts adding to the chemicals found in everyday household cosmetic brands making them deadly in certain combinations. Batman, of course, cracks the code, figures out what's wrong. But before we get to that, there's this amazing uh, sequence where we we find out about the whole poisoning of the cosmetics, right? We get the Joker uh, breaking through on the airwaves, saying that he's done this. These two models suddenly die, and they realize it's because of the the Joker's poison. Another um, news anchor dies on camera. And so everyone realizes that cosmetics and stuff aren't safe. And then we have the next hilarious newscast. They're they're completely without makeup, and they've actually made them, they've really uh, magnified this. So the woman looks like she's totally disheveled and has right. redness around her nose and bags under her eyes, and the guy's got big pimples on Giant his nose pimples. and cheeks, and yeah. his hair's all disheveled. I mean, it really is funny. It's almost too much, but it sort of just squeaks in as being, again, okay with Burton. But if this were a regular movie, you'd be like, what just happened? Why did they have to go so cuckoo with this? <laughs> it was so funny. Uh, so Batman cracks the code, figures out, you know, which uh, products in conjunction with which other products, you know, are deadly. So they stop the Joker's plan, at least for now. And while that is a, a ridiculous movie villain kind of thing to do, right? Like a real villain would just poison stuff and hurt people, right? But the movie villain has to do a clever combination of things and make it interesting. Right. While that's goofy, I also think it's pretty beautiful because it does something that we almost never get to see Batman do, which is use his detective skills, right? He's supposed to be really brilliant. And this was kind of fun that he had a puzzle to solve, even though it's kind of a goofy puzzle. I give this movie so many props because most of the other Batman things we see is just fisticuffs, man. Yeah, he he sort of digs through Jack Napier's past and it turns out he had a um, aptitude in chemistry. For uh, chemistry, yes, thank you. <laughs> he did the detective work. It was really neat to see. There's more of that in uh, in the next movie too. Sort of the last time uh, cinematically, we get to see Batman do some cool detective stuff. So the whole movie has sort of been building up to this big 200th uh, birthday festival for Gotham City, and they announced that it's been canceled due to public safety concerns with the whole Joker thing. But Joker sort of hijacks their broadcast and goes on air and says he's going to have his own party his own parade, and give away $20 million. He's going to dump $20 million on the crowd at midnight and dares Batman to show up and meet him there for a showdown. In a preemptive strike before the festival, 
Batman in perhaps his murderiest move uh, of these movies drives on over to Axis Chemical. Uh, you know, then we realize just what a a weapon of mass destruction that this Batman's Batmobile is. These giant machine guns pop out and cut through the door. He drives through, drops a giant bomb in this factory, killing however many people are in there. Um, the Joker escapes. He missed, you know, the Joker's flying away in a helicopter. And so he commences with his plan for the parade. It's a great point, though. He murdered countless number of people by just <laughs> straight up detonating a building that's yeah. active and live. And because it's a chemical plant, Lord only knows the environmental impact on the city, which is nearby the water supply, <laughs> yeah, the wildlife. I mean, this was some pretty wild and extremist stuff. from Murder and Batman. untold environmental devastation perpetrated by oh. by Tim Burton's Batman. <laughs> so the Joker has his uh, has his parade. We get a great uh, a great scene. One of the sort of set piece Prince music scenes we have in the movie. Trust from the soundtrack is, is playing, and he's got these big balloons, these big floats, uh, big uh, you know parade style Macy's style parade float balloon things. Turns out they are all full of Smilex gas. Batman flies in with the coolest and most worthless piece of equipment we see in this movie. <laughs> His bat wing, his plane, and, you know, scoops all the balloons, takes them away, foils that plan. The Joker grabs Vicky Vale. We have a big chase up this really cool scene up a giant clock tower. Big showdown. We learn earlier in the film that Bruce realizes that the Joker, a young Jack Napier, was in fact the one that murdered his parents all those years ago. Cool scene. Big showdown. Of course, uh, Batman kills the Joker. Straight up tells him. (laughs) He looks at the Joker at one point and goes, I'm going to kill you. And then he does. So, uh, yeah, that's our story. The music. We need to talk about the music in this movie. And this is really cool. There's two sort of sides to the music of this movie, right? As with a lot of our favorites, there is both a fantastic score by Danny Elfman, which is super iconic and has a lot of personal meaning to us, too. But then there is a really neat soundtrack from Prince that is also so special and has so many great songs, even though one could argue that the connection to the movie itself is a little bit tenuous. I guess Tim Burton was not real keen on the whole Prince soundtrack thing. It was kind of a deal with Warner Brothers. Um, It's a great album. As a huge Prince fan, I will defend this album. It does not get the love a lot of other Prince albums get. There was that hilarious scene in Shaun of the Dead where they're throwing the LPs, they're throwing the, the albums at the zombies, and uh, they pull out one. And he's like, Prince. They're like, wait, which one? Batman. And they both go, throw it. They throw it at the zombie. That's terrible. It's an amazing album with so much great stuff. I mean, Bat Dance was released in June of 1989, and it just rocketed up to number one. Right. It was a number one hit for a long time and one of our favorite songs of that entire summer. What's wild is it's this sort of theme song that, you know, in our last podcast, we talked about Ghostbusters and the amazing, iconic theme song that movie had. This was an amazing, iconic theme song that wasn't in the movie. This was like a a song sort of about the movie, like with samples from the movie. This album was really wild. Uh, a lot of the music on it was not actually in the movie, and it's sort of, I feel like it started this trend of soundtracks. I have, I'd have to look, but I think it even said it on there. This trend of a soundtrack being music from and inspired by the motion picture. I feel like that became a thing, and this, this album might have been sort of responsible for that. At least this was the first big example in our lives where we became aware of that phenomenon. Yeah. 
So Bat Dance was, uh, there were a few singles from this, from this album, but Bat Dance was the big one. Fun fact, this was my first compact disc I ever owned for eighth grade graduation. Wow. Uh, I got a stereo. Yeah, I got a stereo with my first CD player, and this was the first thing I got, the soundtrack. That's a worthy addition to the collection, if I say so myself. A concept that we've talked about before is diegetic music. And this movie's unique because I feel like almost all, if not all, of the soundtrack is diegetic in nature, right? Yes. Um, it's it's so funny. There's that moment in Vicki Vale's apartment. Can we hold on? Joker Let's go back comes. and explain what that means real quick for the for the listening audience. Yes. So we love this concept. And the idea is with diegetic sounds, they are sounds that are happening in the environment that the that the characters can actually hear and are part right. of their world. Non-diegetic stuff would be music that's overlaid uh, that the characters aren't aware of and or sounds. And it's kind of funny because certain movies like Deadpool or funny, funny films will play with this concept. Those things will bleed over. And here, almost everything was diegetic. For example, the scene in Vicki Vale's apartment when the Joker goes there, he's got the guy <laughs> carrying the boombox yes. and he actually yep. is changing the music. It's fantastic. These two albums, uh, the score and the soundtrack, had a, a cool parallel in their covers. The soundtrack had, the Prince album had, the iconic, of course, uh, bat symbol from the poster. The album of the score, the Danny Elfman score, was really cool. There's this moment when Batman flies the nearly useless bat wing, the bat-shaped plane, up through the clouds, and he hangs in front of the moon for just a moment, making a bat symbol. And then goes back down. And that was what was on the cover of the score. So you see the clouds at the bottom and the bat wing against the moon. Beautiful cover. It was a very cool shot. And it actually was quite well done. I don't know if it was animated or how exactly they did it. But it was a little bit random. What was he doing up there? And then he of was course, showing the bat us wing. all that he was Batman. Yes, it was a kind of a showboaty move, wasn't it? In the middle of a very tense scene. It was scene. above the clouds. Literally no one could see it. He couldn't even <laughs> see it. But that was a pretty Batman move, if you ask me. It was. And then, of course, he, as he comes down, we really realize how useless the Batwing is when the Joker completely destroys it with a single bullet from a handgun. Again, this out. thing is a murder machine. It's It's got missiles and machine guns, none of which, all of which he fires at the Joker, none of which hit. Um, and then, yeah, the Joker pulls this hilariously long gun out of his pants and shoots it once with the giant pants gun. And uh, it just goes down. Let's talk about some of the other gadgets and vehicles and stuff from this movie. There's the uh, there's the famous quote, where does he get those wonderful toys? Yes. Um, that's actually a, a, a really good question. I feel like in the Christopher Nolan movies with Christian Bale, they give us this really cool real world origin for all his vehicles and gadgets, right? It's like this unused military contract stuff. Um, in this movie... We don't know where Batman gets any of his crazy stuff. The Batmobile, a plane. <laughs> There's the Bat suit, of course. That was our first sort of impression of this movie and how different and, and a unique take on a superhero this movie was. Batman's wearing all black. There's no tights. He's not wearing tights. It's, you know, rubber or latex, whatever they made this suit out of back then. And it, it felt gritty and believable for the most part. The only part, I think, where it started to get a little bit weak was... When he's climbing up the bell tower at the end, he has to look up several times. And you realize that the poor man cannot look up. He's so tight in this cowl that he has to arch his back. He has to bend at the <laughs> waist. There's this great scene where uh, he's running with Vicky Vale away from the bad guys. 
and he looks up and he literally has to bend, do like a back arch at the waist to look up. But the suit was very cool. I do prefer the suit in Batman Returns. Uh, it fits better. It's a little sleeker, smoother. It has, it looks more like body armor. Doesn't have the sort of organic musculature that this suit had. But at the time, the suit was amazing. Do we know about the bat symbol, why the one in his chest was so stylized and different? I mean, it is really cool and I actually do like it, but I wonder what went into that art design. I don't know. It's very, it's so unique. It's very ornate, right? The tail has like these three very distinct points. You would think after spending so much money uh, marketing this very classical looking bat symbol on all these posters, they would have put something like that on the character. But no, it's very bizarre. There's never been a, a bat symbol like it before or since. Of course, we have to talk about, uh, about the Batmobile. The only reference to a live-action Batman we had at this point was... Adam West. Adam West. <laughs> a show that, you know, we, we, we liked, we watched. It was way before our time. I'm sure to kids growing up when it was on, it felt as badass as this did to us. You know, it felt as cool. But by the time we came around, it was super corny. I know it was, it was intentionally campy. Uh, the Batmobile in that show is very cool. That was a Ford Futura, I think, the concept car. But this was a totally different take on it, right? The fins, it was, I want to say it was almost 30 feet long, really crazy, just gorgeous, weird, almost alien sort of design to this Yes, car. and then when he does shields and that wild looking yeah. cocoon comes over it, I was like, whoa. Yes. It almost looks like it was animated, right? It almost looks like really good art artists just drew in those frames of that kind of armadillo looking armor. He had a zip line. The, uh, in the Flugelheim Museum, another great set piece scene where we have um, Party Man playing and, and the Joker's defacing all the artwork. He has that cool zip line thing. His grappling gun, we get to see that. Usually, I think at that point in the comics, Batman was just sort of throwing batarangs and like, you know, with ropes on him and swinging from stuff. This was sort of a cool, at the time, semi-realistic way to have Batman be able to kind of fly and do cool stuff. The sort of gas-powered grappling gun. And then the Batwing, the plane. That was a sad one. Amazing looking, but just couldn't have been dumber. Oh, and then the weird spatula punch thing. <laughs> yeah. There's this one point where like a guy uh, jumps at him, at Batman, and he like holds out his hand and this funny thing, this like weird spatula looking thing kind of shoots out of his hand. That, yeah, towards the end of the film the guy this happens. The it's, yeah, right right before he and the Joker fight, the guy does yeah, the flips. Yeah. I was yeah. confused. I, I wasn't sure what had happened. I thought maybe some kind of a knife or something. I wasn't. Yeah. It was strange. It was very weird. Yeah, if you if you look it out, it's this weird like plungery kind of thing that he's is like specifically very specialized device for uh, smashing the nards of a man who's jumping at you with <laughs> it's just, like, knife shoes. Right, it's second only to bat shark repellent, right, that Adam, that Adam West used to carry. But hey, Batman is prepared for anything. <laughs> bat shark repellent and knife shoes nuts. Spatula shooter. Where does he get those wonderful toys? So I wanted to talk about the sequel. I wanted to talk about Batman Returns, but I've got a lot to say about it. I think we might need to do a, uh, a supplemental episode, another episode, another Batman episode about Batman Returns. What do you think? I think it's a moral imperative. I know this is a show about all things 80s, but I think I'm going to break that rule. Just like Tim Burton broke the rule about Batman not stuffing dynamite down people's pants. <laughs> An unspoken, unwritten rule. So we'll do a little uh, a little feature about Batman Returns. Very quickly, I rewatched it uh, as well for the show. And this is my, we need a new segment, Hot Takes, Spicy Takes, <laughs> with like a guitar riff for like the little theme song. Um, it's a better movie. 
It's a better movie than the original. Now, the original is far more like special to me, and I get why it was more, why it's more revered. Returns is very different, but as a just as a movie, as a cohesive movie and story, I think it holds up way better. Um, and I'm excited to talk about it. Danny DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer as the Penguin and Catwoman, respectively, are uh, like I, I don't know why I had to say respectively. People could figure out who was who. <laughs> There was no confusion there. Michelle Pfeiffer. But they're both fantastic. So I want the penguin. I want to see that movie. (laughs) I want to be in the alternate reality where that's the movie that happened. But anyway, we're going to talk about Batman Returns in detail uh, on another episode. Let's do a little trivia. Should we do a little trivia about uh, the original? Yes, please. So Alexander Knox, our favorite character, gets handed in the newsroom. Uh, They're all making fun of him because he's chasing the story of of the bat of Gotham City. And somebody hands him a drawing, this really awesome drawing of like a bat. Man, a literal Batman in like a pinstripe suit, um, signed and drawn by Bob Kane, the quote unquote creator of Batman, who was supposed to be in the movie, supposed to be the one handing him the, the picture, but I guess he was ill. This is a crazy story about the actual creation of Batman. For for decades, Bob Kane, including in this movie, was credited as, you know, the creator of Batman, all things Batman. When in fact, Bob Kane, he created this guy, this character, who was like a guy with blonde hair in a red suit with a little Lone Ranger mask and like big, dumb bat wings on him. He's like, look, it's Batman. <laughs> and uh, a gentleman by the name of Bill Finger, Bob Kane's part, more like ghost writer than, than partner, I guess, is actually the one who's like, I don't know, maybe he should be like a, like a Batman and made him look, came up with like the look. And the backstory, uh, really everything we know about Batman today really was uh, Bill Finger as opposed to Bob Kane. Now, eventually, sadly, after his death, Bill Finger got credit for his work. Now, I think everything says, you know, based on characters by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. The Joker, we talk about how iconic that casting is, but uh, Robin Williams was offered the role of the Joker when Jack Nicholson, I guess, sort of hesitated the sad thing is, uh, you know, we Robin Williams is uh, was a real geek, loved comic books, loved video games, named his daughter Zelda after the legend of. So he was super excited about it. And the uh, I guess Warner Brothers was actually just kind of using him as, as bait, as a pawn to uh, get Jack Nicholson to agree to sign on. That's terrible. I think it would have been an incredibly different movie with Robin Williams as a Joker, but he has real acting chops. So who knows, right? It might've been amazing of all the Jokers. You know, we've seen quite a few different people play the Joker. I still feel like Jack Nicholson is the most iconic. He set the tone and found the balance between being pretty evil, but also being pretty crazy, but also having a a relatability that meant he wasn't completely detached. Like in the newest movie, the Joker, which I really did enjoy. I felt that it was almost too much. It was almost too unrelatable. Whereas Jack Nicholson, you still get this little bit of grounding in reality. What an amazing character that we can see. So like as much as I love Batman, the different takes on Batman are going to have way more in common with each other than the different takes on the Joker. Right. And I think that says something really cool about that character. Jack Nicholson was did such an amazing job. And Michael Keaton, I got to tell you, looking back in a world where I know, as we've talked about on this podcast many times, the modern day DC movies have their problems. Mm. 
But Ben Affleck as Batman, there's this one scene in Batman versus Superman, Batman v Superman in the warehouse where Batman goes in to uh, save Superman's mom from a bunch of bad guys. Really dumb story. (laughs) But the scene having Ben Affleck in this comic accurate costume as this hulking, physically imposing Batman go in and just Batman the shit out of everybody in this warehouse is really like amazing to see. We didn't have that in 89. And now you look back at Michael Keaton. It's like, he's kind of an average sized dude, not physically imposing, but the mystique that he he did a wonderful job with it. Tim Burton, as much as this is a, a weird take on Batman did such a great job making a Batman movie for us in 1989. And Jack Nicholson was the, the icing, the cherry on top that I think made this whole thing happen and come together and be this amazing thing that we still look back on today. I couldn't agree more. And in so doing, he created a template for the big tent superhero origin story and movie setup that I think we now take for granted and has been refined and polished to what we have today, which now dominates our box office. But we really owe it all to this 1989 movie. I wanted to tell one last story because I I don't think we can close without telling the story. In the summer of 1989, we were taking an art course before high school started. And just to, again, kind of plant the seed about how culturally relevant and the impact on the entire culture at large this movie was for weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to the movie, we were all talking about it. We were drawing Batman and bat symbols and everything. Everybody was wearing T-shirts about it. And when we were getting ready for the tickets, now back then, you couldn't buy tickets in advance. Maybe you could, but you didn't do it. You didn't have the movie phone stuff, let alone the internet. So we were all excited and trying to figure out, you know, how early to get there to get those tickets and, and see it first. That's really the impact on our lives for weeks and probably even months leading up to it. And I can't think of too many movies like that outside of maybe Star Wars, where we're all going crazy as a, as a society. When we we took this art class before uh, our freshman year of high school, there was a kid in our class who the project was using um, like a grid system to enlarge a picture, make like a poster sized version of a smaller picture. And this dude used uh, the cover of the comic book, The Killing Joke, which I believe came out, boy, I want to say 88. I want to say it had just come out before the movie. And this iconic, amazing picture of the Joker holding a camera and it was just sort of like, yeah, like it was just sort of so perfectly tied in to this whole Batman thing that was happening at the time. Uh, it's an important part of our memories of like starting high school. And it's just, again, goes back to what an important part of our lives, this is, uh, what an important role this movie played for us. And fittingly, it also played an important role as we ended high school in our last class that we took together, Modern Dance. And we had an absolute blast learning about all the different types of modern dance and Martha Graham. And for our final project, we actually used Danny Elfman's score to put together what I think is an incredibly memorable extravaganza of modern dance that got a standing ovation and lots of yips and howls and cheers from the audience. And if you check on our bonus page, you may see a picture of a frame or two from that coveted video. It all came full circle. (laughs) And on that note, we look forward to seeing you at the next one. And in the meantime, stay limber.